Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Do you wear a smartwatch? Or perhaps you're one of those growing number of people that uses a wristband to track your daily exercise. These devices, and also smart rings and skin patches, a set of consumer electronics collectively known as wearables, provide users with a continuous stream of measurements about how their bodies are performing. Take a typical smartwatch, something like an Apple Watch or Google's Fitbit, will collect millions of data points every day. They'll include step counts, heartbeats, even how you sleep. Better sensors, increasing computer power and smarter algorithms together mean that today's wearables can provide a reliable, quantified scorecard of you and your lifestyle and health. But the promise of this quantified self-revolution goes much further than that. It could one day transform healthcare and medicine itself. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. This week, we're looking at how modern sensors and algorithms have turned consumer wearables into must-have devices. This is a topic that we've been very interested in here at Babbage. Regular listeners will know we've talked before about Fitbits and smartwatches that can help to diagnose and monitor health problems. We've even looked at how wearables could improve your sleep. In today's episode, we'll explore exactly how sensors and smart software can monitor and improve the health of people and populations. And we'll also take the technology a step further and ask, Can wearables and their associated apps actually start to treat diseases? Smartwatches are catching on as fast as early mobile phones did in rich countries like America, but also Britain, Finland and other European countries at least. Slavea Chankova is The Economist's healthcare correspondent, and she spent the last few months exploring the world of wearable devices. And people are starting to see them as devices that help them monitor their health, not just something that counts your steps. So this idea of the quantified self, so people tracking all sorts of things about themselves, is really becoming mainstream And that's enabling a new kind of healthcare, whereby you have people's personal responsibility over health becoming a lot more prominent. So I'll admit a uh, personal interest in this. I've had an Apple Watch for some time, and I love counting the number of steps I'm doing and all of that. But it's always been a bit of a consumer product, kind of something that you just do as a bit of fun, really. But what we're seeing as a trend, which you've been reporting on, is that this is something that can actually improve your health properly, like with with data, with evidence and so on. So why is it specifically now that that's happening? 
Well, part of all of this is inspired by the pandemic, which really increased people's interest in watching over their health because they couldn't see their doctors. And now they're also able to measure what's going on in the body. We saw, you know, within months that blood oxygen saturation was identified as something to watch for severe COVID. It was added on many devices. So they really became kind of diagnostic devices in, in one way. So more useful, basically. Yes, for, for tracking hardcore health metrics rather than just counting steps. And what about things like software as well? I mean, how does that help? Well, it's both software and hardware, really, because what, what's really driving this trend is we, we are seeing the sensors that measure all these health things. They're getting more sophisticated. And then you have the algorithms that interpret these vast amounts of data, which are improving rapidly. Uh, many of them are backed by AI or machine learning. And we also have computing power that now can be packed in larger and larger amounts onto tiny devices. So you have these wearables being able to do a lot more than they used to be able to do you know, even three to five years ago. Okay, so physical technology, more computing power, better software, it's all kind of coming into a sort of perfect storm where they're actually going to become useful medical devices at some point soon. Well, we, we've kind of mentioned watches. What kinds of devices and fitness trackers are there? Just give us a, a sense of what's, what's available to track your um, vitals. Well, they come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, there are hundreds of them. One recent review found almost 400, and I'm sure they've missed a lot in probably non-English-speaking countries like China. But they vary from the popular wristbands or smartwatches that we are familiar with to smart rings, earplugs, sensors that you attach on your shoes, headbands, continuous glucose monitors, which looks like patches that you stick on the skin. So a really, really broad variety. So what, what, what do these sensors on these devices actually do? What kinds of things are they able to do right now? They can do tons of things. So most of them have various LED lights. So that's kind of one of the primary mechanism through which the sensors are really peeking inside the body and, and trying to estimate what's going on in the bloodstream, for example. So on devices, you often see green, red and infrared LED lights. Some of them have temperature sensors. Most of them have miniature 3D accelerometers. And, you know, all these photo detectors that I, I mentioned. And so all these different coloured lights and the algorithms that exist right now, what kinds of information are they gathering about your body and, and kind of how good is it? So if you take, for example, the green LEDs that measure heart rate or pulse, the way they do that, they shine light through the skin, it reaches the blood vessels, and then as they expand and contract when the heart pumps blood through the body, the light that bounces back changes accordingly. But some colors of lights are more sensitive to artifacts like motion or temperature or humidity and all, all of that. So their signal needs algorithmic adjustment. So obviously some of them are better when you're sitting still. So they would measure things at night or when they catch you, you know, not moving around. Some of them are better when you're exercising. So that's why you, you have all these different bits of technology. It's one thing to count steps and measure pulses and all those things more accurately, which is clearly happening. But how do you turn all of that information into something that's medically useful? Because that's a whole different world. Yes, and that's where the algorithms come in. And they're becoming more sophisticated, particularly when, when we have more computing power that can really make them work with large amounts of data off our wrists or fingers. So 
these algorithms vary from fairly basic ones to quite complex programs that combine lots of different data sources to come up with digital biomarkers, as they call them. So a simple one would be just turning the noisy data from photodetectors, as I just described, adjusting it for noise and calculating the heartbeat or the pulse. A more complicated algorithm would combine several different things like heart rate, temperature, movement, to measure quality of sleep. Not only that, more complex algorithms can even collect clinical data. Sensors obviously read out a a vast range of numbers. They start analogue and become digital. Ewan Ashley is a cardiologist and geneticist at Stanford University. From the perspective of uh, heart rate, for example, you get uh, a waveform that basically goes up and down. And you have to then turn that into something useful like heart rate. Um, Heart uh, rhythm can be then guessed at from that. Uh, And obviously, as you move around and exercise, you start to see uh, what is the gap between each individual heart rate. Uh, And for example, to pick up a very common bad rhythm of the heart called atrial fibrillation. And that can be very powerful. Atrial fibrillation is when the heart beats at an irregular rhythm. One complication of that condition can be the formation of a blood clot inside the heart. If that clot gets into the brain, it can cause a stroke. There are effective treatments for clots, blood thinning drugs. But first, you do need to know that you have a problem. So the opportunity for digital health is to be able to use a wearable sensor that sits all the time on the wrist or most of the time during the day and can constantly or intermittently check to see if your heart rate is regular or irregular. And and the algorithm part of that is really as simple as that. Is your heart regular or irregular? And and the companies look a little differently at ways of picking that up. But generally speaking, they, they check for that regularity. They check again a few more times. And if they find it multiple times to be irregular, they would report that back to you as potential atrial fibrillation. The sensor that you've just been talking about, is that in a sort of smartwatch, or is it something more bespoke than that? Yeah, it's now embedded in multiple smartwatches. The most famously, I think the Fitbit and Apple Watch both have that functionality, but there's also multiple others that can bring that forward. In recent years, America's medical regulator, the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, has cleared the software on the Apple Watch to identify atrial fibrillation. And in April this year, Google's Fitbit got clearance for its atrial fibrillation function too. That means that the FDA has decided that these algorithms are medically reliable when measuring the condition. Many smartwatches now also offer the ability to record an ECG. That measures the electrical activity of the heart. And it also means that these watches can confirm a suspected diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. In this way, wearables could help to screen a so-called healthy population. Although the FDA insists that the data itself is not intended to inform clinical action, Ewan has had first-hand experience of patients who've been warned of a problem by a wearable device. Without them, they may not have gone on to seek medical help and get a formal diagnosis. We should calibrate for the fact that my practice is in the middle of Silicon Valley, and so very many of my patients are very techy to begin with, and are very interested to try the latest thing. So I had one patient, for example, who was sitting at home watching uh, TV and eating pizza, and his smartwatch congratulated him for being in the fat-burning zone. And he was rather surprised by that, <laughs> since he was sitting at home watching TV. That's my eating. kind of fat-burning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no miracle cures here. But then he felt a little palpitation that he hadn't actually noticed prior to then, and thought maybe something was up. 
So he went to the hospital and it turned out he was in a potentially very dangerous rhythm called ventricular tachycardia that his Fitbit had really without trying picked up. His heart rate was essentially 150 beats per minute. Uh, so I think that the, the value of these devices is actually very significant, although we're at the, the earliest stages in working out how best to use them. We can laugh about some of these examples as being slightly ridiculous, but what is the risk of false positives and misleading information from these sorts of devices? Yeah, that's something that has been really a significant focus over the course of, of the last few years for those of us who are interested in this area. In fact, in the end, it turns out to be quite well uh, calibrated for, for both Apple and Fitbit, at least the two that have been uh, studied the most. I think the medical community felt that that was an acceptable false positive rate. Of course, that means because it's tuned in that way that w- there will be some cases where it is not picked up. The, the inevitability of a very high specificity uh, is that the sensitivity is a bit less, which is to say that there's a few cases where the atrial fibrillation might be missed. Ewan thinks it's got the potential to bring massive public health benefits. If you can pick up this rhythm in advance of, let's say, someone presenting with a stroke, obviously that has significant benefit for the individual. But even thinking about that on a population basis, uh, stroke is one of the, the most expensive conditions from the perspective of, of rehab. So this could be something that could actually save the healthcare system money over time. Ewan has also been investigating how accurate consumer wearables actually are, compared to the medical grade systems used in doctors' clinics today. This was several years ago, so several uh, generations of devices ago, we were actually pleasantly surprised at just how good the heart rate monitoring was. And we felt at that point that it really was ready for clinical prime time. But I think it's important to note that not every measurement is at that range. So while the heart rate estimates were really good in that study, the estimates of energy expenditure, so the calories for exercise, were really all over the place. And no device really was significantly accurate in detecting those. So I think there's some caution required, for example, if you're, if you're exercising and your device tells you 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 know, you've used 300 calories and you think, well, that, that's a donut for me later this afternoon, then you have to be a little bit careful with that estimate because the accuracy isn't really quite there for calorie and energy expenditure. Even when measuring a more direct signal like a pulse, though, wearables can have their problems. If you look at a Fitbit, it's the back, uh, the green light that's pulsing. It turns out that different colour skin Uh, will absorb that green light in a different level. That's Andy Korovos. She's the co-founder of a digital health organisation called Human First. So, for example, depending on the coloration of your skin, those will absorb sunlight in different forms. And they found that different skin tones had different levels of accuracy. And so that obviously could be accidentally used as a mechanism of unconscious bias or um, perhaps being more accurate for certain types of populations than others. In some of the instances, they were uh, performing better on lighter color skin than on darker color skin. And once people realized this, then they started training these algorithms to work differently um, on the different skin tones. What Andy calls the validation of these devices can be very specific to the population that it's been designed and tested on. Andy's company, Human First, has compiled a resource aimed at making it easier to see if a wearable sensor has been validated for the intended purpose. What inspired my co-founder 
and me to start Human First was to figure out a better way to collect all the different types of evidence for these types of sensors that we can use them with higher levels of trust. And we track over a thousand different sensors and wearables, and then also the measures and different conditions that they're used in. And today, uh, 22 of the top 25 pharma companies use our platform, but we've also released a part of our platform, open access, free of charge for academic researchers who are using these certain types of tools. But that doesn't resolve another potential problem with the data from consumer devices. America has privacy protections for health data, but wellness data isn't covered. Yet, as we've seen, the information from consumer wearables is edging closer and closer to being used as health or medical data. So imagine uh, right now your blood, your stool, your genomic data, we generally have good protections around those so that you don't have some sort of discrimination for it. And the lines between health and wellness are, are very fuzzy. So when someone says, oh, this helps you sleep better, that's not making a medical claim saying this helps cure your insomnia does. And our protections for medical products is very high. Our protections for wellness data is not very high. And the way that our current regulatory system works is we don't have a lot of good ways to ensure that people aren't discriminated against in a non-health data. So maybe your product that is measuring a vocal biomarker or a speaker that's turning on your lights could also measure how much tremor you have. And early stage Parkinson's can show that it's arriving based on some of the tremor sounds that you have. If we don't really think about this holistically, a company that is collecting voice information might also say, hey, maybe this person has Parkinson's. Maybe we want to show them certain types of ads, or maybe we want to segment them in a certain type of group. And that can have pretty significant unintended consequences for people, especially without a comprehensive overview of non-discrimination. Andy wants governments to think more about how they protect all of this personal information. So that's why it's really important to think about what is in this privacy policy? Who has access to this data? How can that data be used for my benefit or against me? And really thinking about the security of these different types of tools, because effectively you are uniquely identifiable with 30 seconds of walk data. So this is extreme biometric signatures that can measure information about you. I think Unfortunately, we've probably passed a point where we're able to really protect this information. So I think a lot of people say don't share it, but a lot of it's already been shared in a pretty meaningful way. And so what I hope most people start thinking about is how can we make sure that certain groups are not discriminated against and that we all have access to high quality, good healthcare. It's worth remembering that more data can bring its own problems too. For me, I think at a population level, It's very exciting that we're able to arm people with more data. And I think one of the things that we just have to make sure that we're doing is, are we giving people information that is actionable for them and not overwhelming the healthcare system? So I think that these will be much better in in certain circumstances than others. That's an important point. If an algorithm decides that lots of people have a particular heart condition, it might not then be able to advise on what people should do with that information. That means lots of people get worried and it causes an unprecedented burden on healthcare systems. Therefore, these tools need to be properly validated and easy to use, both for patients and practitioners. The potential for wearable devices to better monitor health, though, is huge. 
People with chronic conditions will reap the most immediate benefits by using technology to monitor their individual health. They'll be able to use their own real-time measurements to gauge how healthy they are and how much a new medical intervention might be helping. Diagnosing and monitoring won't be the only ways, however, that wearables will have a tangible impact on health. There's the tantalising possibility that these technologies could help to treat conditions too. That's coming up. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. I'm back in the studio with Slavea Chankova, The Economist's healthcare correspondent. Slavea, we've talked already about how technology can help doctors to diagnose conditions. But I guess the next step might be for software to take over from some of the things that doctors do and perhaps actually treat conditions by themselves. Now, if we get to the point where technology gets good enough to help people treat themselves, does that mean, you know, that we're not going to be seeing our doctors anymore and their surplus to requirements? I think we are far from not needing doctors, but there is certainly a big role for uh, digital therapeutics, as they are called, which is really software as treatment. So that's usually an app, which is oftentimes connected to some device or several devices, in fact, which could be wearables, the types of we are familiar with, but maybe additional ones that you get as part of the treatment. In these digital therapeutics, you know, some of them are actually formally reviewed by medical regulators in America and Europe, and we already have dozens of them approved that way for treating, you know, anything from asthma to mental health problems and so on. So can you give me an example, perhaps, of one of the conditions you might be able to treat like this way? So one example is a treatment for panic disorders called Freespira by an American company. And the way it works, there is a tiny sensor that you place in your nose that measures how you breathe, and that's connected to a tablet. And the idea is that people with panic disorders, they breathe in a certain way that leads to the buildup of carbon dioxide. And that's thought to set off the biological mechanisms behind panic. So that treatment, you know, you just do it 15 minutes or so of training with the device that measures your breathing and kind of teaches you how to normalize it. And early trials, relatively small, but they they show very promising results for a condition that had been notoriously hard to treat. That's fascinating. So the idea there is that you're getting medical devices, or at least one day you'll be able to get medical devices miniaturized and able to be used outside clinics in a much more sort of friendly way than having to sort of find doctor's appointments and things, which can be quite difficult for people who have these sorts of conditions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and sometimes all you need is your smartphone. So now you can get a physiotherapist, AI therapist, that just diagnoses you and watches you from the smartphone camera and issues instructions. And, And that's, you know, almost as good or 
probably better in some cases than a human therapist. Now, of course, there are already treatments for many of the conditions that digital therapeutics is trying to tackle too. So why are these kinds of treatments better or why do we need these sorts of things in addition to drugs and other things? Well, there are lots of things that medicine still cannot treat, really. If we take drugs, we are way too dependent on drugs, and they're not always effective. You know, we know that most drugs work as intended in something like 30 to 50 percent of people because of differences in biology, genetics, and, and all sorts of things. They can also have nasty side effects. And of course, drugs rely on human motivation. People have to take them regularly, people with chronic conditions. And we see that that's a big problem. You know, even people who've just survived a heart attack, those are the people who are probably the most motivated to take their medications. In just about three weeks, you see that adherence to medication starts to wane. Uh, within a year, most of them are not even picking up some of their medication. And then you have people with chronic diseases, several of them at once, you know, people who may have diabetes, heart disease, whatnot. Uh, they may be conscientious and want to do the right thing, but they can struggle to keep track of everything they have to do. And that's where you have these digital therapeutics coming in, helping people manage their condition. Wearables and their associated algorithms are increasingly being used to treat physical health problems too. One example of a company working in this space is Medrhythms, which treats neurological conditions with music. I spoke to Brian Harris, the company's co-founder and chief executive. I am a board-certified music therapist um, and I have advanced training in the neuroscience of music and specifically how that can be clinically applied to help people recover from neurologic disease and injury. And at MedRhythms, we are building uh, next-generation digital therapeutics, uh, leveraging the neuroscience of music to help people improve walking following neurologic disease and injury. Music therapy is traditionally delivered in clinics by trained therapists. For patients with neurological conditions, the idea is that the music activates the brain in such a way that it also helps them to improve their mobility. The core mechanism of action of this is a process that's called auditory motor entrainment, which is the neuroscience of how you can use an external auditory rhythmic cue to engage the motor system. So the science shows that there's a rich connectivity between the auditory system and the human motor system. Now, this is applicable to uh, neurologically healthy individuals. Um, I always say it's uh, the, the reason why we want to tap our foot along to music when we hear it. Or if you actually take a piece of music and you try to walk to the beat of the music, um, and then it's usually for most people pretty, pretty easy to do that. But it's almost impossible for a human to not walk to the beat of the music that's in their environment because the rhythm is literally activating the motor system, telling the brain to tell the body to fire in synchrony with that. Medrhythms uses sensors to deliver music therapy autonomously. What the product does is as the patient is walking, um, we collect all of their baseline data. So we actually get about 40 data points for every step that a patient takes. That uh, And that data that we're collecting are things like symmetry, stride length, variability, speed, cadence, etc. That data feeds into our algorithm. As I mentioned, it's based upon a mobile device and then we are delivering music via headphones. So the patient is walking, they walk in silence for about um, uh, 60 seconds or so and we collect all of that data at baseline. 
And then we start music at around the tempo that they're walking. So if they're walking at 80 steps per minute, we start the music at 80 beats per minute. And then uh, in real time, we are collecting all of their data about how well they're able to walk to the beat of the music, but also their quality of gait. So we're looking at things like variability and symmetry to ensure that they're walking with good quality. And then over time, we modulate the music um, at different tempos to push uh, the patients to walk at different speeds while maintaining a high quality of gait. That happens consistently over the course of an intervention uh, period, which, depending on the, the population, is typically somewhere between 30 and 40 minute sessions. Okay, so what kind of conditions are you working on? We've built a pipeline uh, to date across neurologic disease and, and injury. We are furthest along with our uh, asset in chronic stroke. So these are patients that are uh, typically at least three to six months post-stroke that still have persistent walking deficits. Um, but we've also advanced our pipeline uh, in acute stroke, in Parkinson's disease, uh, and in multiple sclerosis as well. Okay, and, and just describe for me what the equipment itself looks like and um, what sensors are being used. Sure, so the, the sensors are uh, ankle-worn or foot, they attach to the shoe. They're biomechanical foot-worn sensors. So there's one that goes on to each shoe. And then uh, there's a, a mobile device or an app on a mobile device. And then headphones. The whole system is Bluetooth connected. So it's Bluetooth sensors connected to the mobile device and then Bluetooth headphones connected to the mobile device as well. Brian's company has been testing this digital therapy on people who've had stroke, like Chrissy Bellows. I am now 74. I was 68 when I had my stroke. I had just retired from teaching school. This was April, and it was the first beautiful day that we had in Maine. And so Bill was going to go out and mow the lawn, and I was going to go out and clean up, you know, mess from the winter storms and um, for some reason at one point I just started to feel really strange and I, luckily Bill had not started the lawnmower because I called him and he heard me. I saw him come around the corner and I don't remember anything for the next six weeks. It was a, a left brain stroke which affected her obviously her right side and uh, the cognitive area of her brain so there's just some uh, memory difficulty that's chrissy's husband bill she was actually in the hospital uh, for i think about two weeks and then she went to rehab the paralysis was, was complete on the right side a nurse one day was able to get a tiny twitch out of one toe but that was that was all on that was the only uh, sensation she could feel on her right side uh, she was in rehab for, I don't know, five or six weeks, I think. And with that degree of paralysis, she couldn't, she couldn't do anything with the right side. So when she came home at the end of that, she was pretty much only in a, in a wheelchair. I had to roll her around if she wanted to go to the bathroom. I helped her out of bed into the wheelchair, roll the wheelchair in the bathroom. Same with the shower. The first shower I gave her was a disaster. <laughs> water all over the bathroom. All over me, I think I was as wet as Chrissy was. 
When Chrissy was offered to try the Medrhythm system, she and Bill took the opportunity. We went down one day to do some testing. We walked in and Brian said, um, I want you to walk for 30 minutes today. And I thought, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> she hasn't walked for 30 minutes, four or five years, whatever it was. Chrissy finally said, I've, I've had it, I can't go any longer. Uh, Brian, who was with us, uh, Brian Harris said, this is close enough to 30 minutes that we can stop. So we walked to the chair, we were almost there, and Chrissy's leg wouldn't move. Well, the music stopped. Chrissy's leg wouldn't move. We got her sitting down and I turned to Brian and I said, what happened that she couldn't move her leg? And he said, the music stopped. <laughs> but I thought, wow, this is really just amazing that that it, that it works that way. It, it, it was so dramatic that I, I just keep thinking about that and how wonderful it was to know that you turn on the music and she can walk. <laughs> As you look at the field of chronic stroke, there really is nothing on the market that's been shown to be able to help these patients improve the way that they walk. When they get to three to six months post-stroke, that's when they typically stop receiving services or stop receiving insurance reimbursement because they've plateaued. That's Brian Harris, the boss of Medrhythms again. Um, but what we were seeing in the clinic um, as a clinician and then what we're continuing to see in our, uh, in our studies is that uh, patients can get better in this chronic phase of stroke. And if you looked at you know, our feasibility study, we demonstrated that even in just two weeks of an intervention that we could see between a 10 and 15% improvement in gait speed uh, over the course of just four sessions. Um, and so that is meaningful, particularly in that disease state where nothing currently exists to help them. There's still some way to go for this particular tool. For example, they'll need to undertake some rigorous clinical trials before this goes from just being a promising idea to a real clinical therapy. We are finishing up now a large multi-site uh, national clinical trial, an eight-site clinical trial, uh, for which data has not been analyzed yet, but we're finishing that up now in chronic stroke. So, you know, we're early in the feasibility uh, stage, but it's really rooted in robust literature supporting the intervention over the last uh, 30 years or so. Demonstrating that you can use an uh, external rhythmic cue to engage the auditory system. Do you think that in future you'll be able to widen the number of neurological conditions to which this kind of therapy might be useful? Absolutely. I mean, based upon what we understand about the neuroscience of music and even specific to walking, this is really applicable to anybody that has a, a walking deficit due to neurologic disease and injury. So this could be, you know, as we think about some of the more well-known ones, Parkinson's disease, MS, etc., um, there is an entire pipeline of diseases outside of that that this could impact. Um, we even think about those with non-neurologic disorders as well, so the aging population. Um, but then it also it's exciting to think about into the future because of how uh, deeply processed music is in our brain and how it can be really beneficial for, for brain health. How could this be applied outside of just walking as well, which we've started to think about. But really, uh, as we think about walking specifically, across the broad spectrum of neurologic disease and injury, we are seeing the potential application.
So Slavea, Brian there was understandably very positive about the idea of digital therapies. But the cynic in me does wonder, do do you think that digital therapeutics might be a threat to existing drug companies and therefore might struggle to find a place? I don't think so. I mean, some of them definitely treat conditions uh, for which treatment doesn't really exist or is not very good. But for the most part, the way things are shaping up now is for digital therapeutics to be a sidekick of drug treatments, so used in combinations. And we are seeing lots of partnerships between pharma companies and digital therapeutics manufacturers. And pharma companies, they have the sales force to market these things to doctors because, you know, they need to know about these things in order to prescribe them. But these apps can increase the efficacy of drugs. So if people eat better, sleep better, take their medicines on time, exercise more, they're likely to have fewer side effects. So they would be happier with their drug treatment. And obviously, you know, there is uh, self-interest among the pharma companies because you have all these data that you're collecting from patients in real time, which they've never had before, which could really, really help them in their business. It always comes up to think, well, if you're collecting all this data from people who are using your devices, then who has access to that data? There's obviously always privacy concerns about personal data. But theoretically, if these data are used properly, could they improve the drugs that people have as well? That's always the problem with data. The more you collect, the better the treatment you provide is because you have a richer picture about the individual human being. Uh, Your algorithms can be better. But then, of course, there's the question of would people want to use your products? Would they provide this data? So there is quite a bit of variation out there in what companies are doing. And obviously, there are problems. There have been scandals with data hacks and, and so on. And that will be happening as the field matures. But longer term, I think providers will kind of find a way to strike the balance between collecting the data they need to improve their products and uh, protecting the privacy of consumers to the extent that they can. And we're already seeing this, you know, with some products, you may get a ping saying, hey, would you like to participate in this test of the product for certain medical conditions? And then people can volunteer and open access to their data for the device manufacturer so they can improve their product. Those are all, of course, very important points. But Slavea, when do you think that this medical revolution will start to make an impact on people? Well, I think the ball is already rolling, or I should say snowballing. It's already happening, but it will take time before we we start seeing digital therapeutics, for example, being prescribed the way conventional drugs are being prescribed. It may take, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, uh, according to the experts I spoke to. But the field is progressing rapidly, and the technology is really ripe. Uh, People are used to you know, having these devices, they're getting more comfortable with the whole data sharing business. And there is a lot of investment going into this. We are seeing some of the tech giants now behind wearable devices. Now, Slavey, not only have you explained the entire quantified self-industry to me, uh, you've also been researching it on yourself for a few months as well. What are the things you've taken away from it? Well, at some point I was wearing three devices at the same time, so just tracking everything about myself. A medical marvel. (laughs) You're probably the healthiest person on the planet. Yes, uh, and it can be distressing at times if you 
don't have an explanation of what the metrics mean. But thankfully, more and more devices actually tell you what these things mean and what you can do to improve your metrics. But I think I'm very, very optimistic about the future of all of this. Uh, there are lots of challenges. Uh, but as I said, the ball is already rolling. And we are moving away from a world, you know, where you see your doctor maybe once a year and they catch or don't catch whatever you may have to a world in which we have these devices watching over you all the time without you doing anything at all. And also you have this new shift from what doctors treating patients and telling them what to do to patients doing lots on their own day in, day out to keep themselves better, which is great because a lot of disease is actually lifestyle related. So if people can be helped change those lifestyles, and, and that's what the devices and all the software can do, the impact can be absolutely enormous. Now, one, one aspect of this which we perhaps should talk about is access. The idea of having all these smartwatches and rings and so on is great, but some communities just won't have the devices, particularly, say, developing countries where there's usually a high burden for conditions like heart disease. Will this medical data revolution go to those places, do you think? Well, the way I'm thinking about this is, you know, if you look at America, digital therapeutics are used by lots of people who might otherwise not receive care at all. So, you know, mental health apps from the smartphone is one good example. And, you know, the care from an AI therapist may not always be as good as that from a human being, but it's still something. It can fill a gap until a human specialist is available, for example. And, you know, it can be accessed a lot more easily from home. So some people may not be able to afford the time off to go see a doctor. They may not be able to pay for care. Or in some places, there is a severe shortage of healthcare specialists, you know, particularly in mental health. And then if you look at developing countries, you know, many people are skeptical. But what I would say is just look at smartphones, you know, in 2021, more than half of Indians owned a smartphone. And Deloitte, the consulting firm, thinks that by 2026, there will be a billion of them. So all this skepticism that technology cannot absolutely become widespread in developing countries, I would say, is not a strong argument. Okay, and finally, Slavia, because we don't want you to have any rest at all, um, this isn't the last time we're going to be talking about these sorts of wearable technologies in healthcare. I'm led to believe that you're about to start testing personalized nutrition for us as well. Yes, uh, that's one area I'm quite excited about. I'm interested in testing how sensors and algorithms can work together to improve diets, to really personalize them, because we know that most diets don't work at all for the vast majority of people. And that's an extremely important part of our health. So what I'll be testing uh, is a product that's going to involve a continuous glucose monitor, an app, and a um, set of scientific muffins. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> that wasn't what I was expecting to hear. What's a scientific muffin? <laughs> well, they're um, specially formulated muffins, but they, they basically have a set amount of carbs, fat, protein, and I so see. on. So okay. you eat the muffin and then you measure how your body reacts to that particular combination. And then that helps the algorithm, along with other tests like microbiome and blood tests and glucose monitoring, establish what your bespoke diet should look like. Well, I look forward to hearing about the scientific muffins and perhaps even eating one. So good luck with all of that. And we'll hear about your experiment in a future episode of Babbage. Thank you, Alok. Nice talking to you. 
You can read Slavea's full Technology Quarterly Supplement on all of this and more by subscribing at economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a link in the show notes. Consumer wearables are showing a tremendous amount of promise that goes well beyond monitoring general well-being and much further into improving health and even becoming part of medicine. Sure, there are plenty of issues still to solve. Are they equally reliable for everyone? Will they generate unnecessary worry, sending too many people to their doctors for tests or treatments that they just don't need? And with big tech companies producing ever more devices and sensors, more new tests could become the norm for a so-called healthy population. Technology companies often want to move fast and break things. But a mantra that works well for social networks and software might not be so suitable when it comes to looking after human bodies. That's all from us. Thanks to Ewan Ashley, Andy Korovos, Brian Harris, Chrissy and Bill Bellows, and of course, The Economist's Slavea Chankova. And thank you for listening to Babbage. If you've missed our previous episodes on the future of wearable technology in healthcare, be sure to give them a listen. Head to economist.com slash babbagewearables to find our complimentary episodes. They're called The Smart Watch Will See You Now and Can Tech Improve Your Sleep. And don't forget, look out for that upcoming show with Slavea on whether technology can transform personalised nutrition. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, dreaming about scientific muffins, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.